Blog Talk Radio. Hello? Yes, okay, we're live. All right. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy, history, and the community an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrigenius.com. And on my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. In fact, like my page. Well, do you know who the genes teachers are and the role they played in the education of African-American children in rural America? Well, my guest tonight, Dr. Valinda W. Littlefield, the director of African-American Studies, an associate professor of history, the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, will help us answer that question. Her research focuses on Southern African American women educators during the Jim Crow era. She earned dual degrees, a BA in history and political science, and a PhD from the University of Illinois. The title for tonight's show is To Do the Next Needed Thing, Jeans, Teachers, and the Freedom Struggle. So let me welcome my special guest, Dr. Belinda Littlefield. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm delighted. Oh, delighted. I have been looking forward to this show tonight. So, of course, what is the big burning question? Who were the James teachers, and where does the name come from? Yeah, they're an interesting lot. Uh, They were rural Southern African-American supervisors from 1908 to 1968. Mostly women, because the president of the found of the Jeans Foundation from 1908 to 1931 felt that women were better suited uh, for the types of jobs that they were that they did. 
and they were paid an average of $45 a month for 67 months. Uh, the name comes from Anna T. Jeans, who was a white Quaker woman uh, from Philadelphia. And in 1907, she provided uh, funding to start the Jeans program. And the Jeans program is modeled after Virginia Estelle Randolph, who was the first Jeans teacher. She was an African-American teacher in Enrico County, Virginia. And what she had done was to to involve the community in, in the schooling. And you could tell a difference in the in the people who lived in the community, the kinds of things that they did. And so she became the model. Well, that sounds so exciting just to think that. And, and when you say became the model, what does that mean uh, for those who are thinking of what is education in a rural school back in 1907? Yeah. Um, dark. When you think of a rural setting, you, you absolutely have to think of very few cars, if any, uh, you have to think of wooded places. You have to think of agriculture. Um, you have to think of starting from the ground up, and that includes building schools, whatever, however you want to look at it. Uh, that includes doing everything in the community that needs to be done. Uh, the first generation of Jeans teachers were normally rule-born uh, but they were seasoned teachers. They had taught. Um, for instance, when you think about a Virginia Randolph, she started teaching in 1890, uh, but she becomes the first jeans teacher in 1908. So she's a seasoned teacher, and you will see that model carry out with the with the with the rest of the program. As a matter of fact, that these women are are rural school teachers, but they're seasoned. Uh, they're usually the first generation. Uh, they're usually trained in industrial education work at institutions such as Hampton and Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. um, they also report directly to the county superintendent as well as a state agent for Negro education, which creates some interesting dynamics. Yes, I can imagine it does. Well, let's just talk a little about the impact that they have on uh, African-American education. I would argue that their impact was, was just huge. Um, they worked at increasing attendance, um, school attendance for students. They worked at building schools as well as maintaining schools. Uh, they encouraged and, and facilitated teacher training, uh, you know, as, as far as working with the curriculum with teachers, classroom instruction. Uh, they did workshops in the summer. They offered summer schools. They made sure that teachers went to these summer schools and workshops. They encouraged and facilitated teachers in going on to get additional education, like a master's or or an, or an EDD later. Um, they were organizers. I, you know, one of the things that amazes me about these these this group is that they were just tremendous. They did a tremendous job at organizing communities. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, but when you look at attendance just for the South, when you look at school attendance in the South, you've got 1880, 1890, you get you know an increase from 20 to 30%, and then you get a 22% increase between 1900 and 1920, and then by 1950, you've got 69% of Southern African American children attending schools. That's mm -hmm. a lot of work. Yes, that's a that's a tremendous uh, amount of work. Yes, especially when all the other things are playing against them. You know, needed in the fields, all those other things. Right. Well, you know, you you mentioned Jean's teachers and the and the freedom struggle, mm -hmm. and I can imagine just thinking of what was going on back then. 
when and it is perhaps many right. of the of the young people in the, the children in the rural areas were probably still expected to work in the field. Yes, they were. And one of the roles that these women played was to convince um, children to come to school, but also, and, and you know, it didn't take much because African Americans wanted their kids in school to begin with. And the other thing that that worked for them is this, it's almost like, well, actually it is. It's, it's like them lifting the veil off white size. And sometimes, you know, that wasn't easy um, in that these children need to be in school. They need some education. Uh, and so they played that, you know, they played that off. Um, and it worked in, in many, many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But and, what happened before? I mean, it, you know, we're talking about the genes teachers, but I have seen, I mean, I, I, even in 1870 census, I've seen, uh, African American kids in school. Well, what, yes. What was that school? Well, normally it was a one room school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it a lot of times you're looking at schools started by uh, African Americans. That school could have been the church. Churches played a huge role in starting schools. Um, you know, take up a donation, start a school. Teachers played a huge role in starting uh, schools. African Americans were hungry for for education uh, after the Civil War. They were hungry before, but once the Civil War was over and they had some access, they took advantage of that access and they spent their own money. Um, they gave up land. They gave up time and labor, and you know you can you can you know pennies, whatever it took, they did it. Mm-hmm. And churches, especially, were extremely um, busy with doing that. But individuals as well, even if they didn't have kids, if they had a little piece of land, they'd give it up for school in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Which is which is wonderful. Just to but you you're talking about the freedom struggle, so that's part of it to that become is educated. Part of it. Yeah. It is. It, it's, it's part of that freedom struggle. And when we think about genes teachers and organizing, one of the things that, that many of them did was to, um, you know, this is industrial education time where they're teaching people, you know, how to can, how to do those kinds of things. And you often think of these kinds of things as, well, do they really need to learn how to do that? Shouldn't they learn, you know, Latin and these other things? It wasn't that students weren't learning Latin, because some schools taught Latin uh, and, and other higher ed courses. But when you think about preserving food, uh, and they did this through homemakers clubs, and Jean's teachers were responsible for organizing homemakers clubs and maintaining them. And these were clubs, community clubs, uh, women, young girls, as well as young males. And the main focus was to preserve food. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to think of preserving food in many, many ways. It, 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 it works, if you think about it. it, they used it as a funding source. Yes. So in other words, they would can food, they would sell it, they would also use it. And the, the, the money that they raised would go into maintaining and building schools. All right, so you've got a community involved in this. The other thing is it saves the family money, and you cannot uh, you cannot underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also a health benefit if you're getting vegetables in the wintertime instead of just what most many rural people got was you know pork, uh, bread, cornmeal, those kinds of things. You're changing the diet habits, so you're going to have a healthier group. They're going to be able to attend school. Um, 
And, you know, I found this wonderful quote about it. This was a, a Virginia merchant in the early 19, it's around 1917. And he said, um, I cannot even sell them, and he's talking about canned goods to Negroes, for they tell me they have got a teacher and a learning to do this work for themselves. Mm-hmm. Which is so wonderful. it is a freedom struggle. Yes, it does. They're becoming self-sufficient. Yes, yes. Well, well, how did their roles change over time? Because I'm hearing you and you're talking about um, they were organizers. Uh, mm-hmm. What else? What else did they do? And definitely the the canning. And we need that right now. <laughs> oh boy, do we need that right oh, now? Yes, yes. The, I wish uh, I knew how to do that. Oh well, it, it's very time consuming. I can tell you that. It's very, very time-consuming, and you also have to think about the time period. I mean, this isn't when, you know, you had a gas oven or a gas stove and or electric stove. Uh, you know, you're talking wood. You're talking hauling hot water. It, 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 it was very time-consuming, believe me. Um, but one of the things that when you talk about evolving, you have a first generation of, of genes teachers, and that's that, that first, that ni- 1908, um, to about the mid-1920s, early 1930s. And that generation dealt with, you know, establishing schools like the Rosenwald schools. And I know you have someone coming on later who's going to talk about that, so I'm not going to go into a lot of details about establishing those kinds of schools. But also organizing people into homemakers clubs. Not only did they preserve food, but the young males often sold uh, poultry and, and swine. And so they were also learning other things. Uh, but so you've got that first group who's industrially, who's educated basically in Hampton and Tuskegee. So they come out of that industrial education background. Um, and they know how to work in a garden. They know how to plant food. They know how to preserve food. Uh, so that's that's that first generation. By the time you get to the second generation, they have moved more into, I would argue, dealing with the curriculum more, mm-hmm. um, dealing with getting teachers into workshops and into uh, summer schools and going to other schools to get their master's. And so when you think about the curriculum, they really worked with teachers on how do you teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would spend a lot of time traveling from school to school, and you know, I one of the teachers that I interviewed and researched, she had 84 schools assigned to her. These are county schools, and most of them are one-room schools. But she had 84 schools she was responsible for. And when she got to her job, the superintendent said, "Here, you've got 84 schools. I don't have a clue as to where they are." but it's your job to find them and do a good job. This wow. was in 1936. Okay, He didn't know where they were. Mm-hmm. By the time the Jeans Teachers Program ended in 1968, that superintendent would have known where every one of those schools were because she would have made sure that he visited them uh, through county commencements. Uh, let me explain county commencements. County commencements are these... Um, elementary school celebrations at graduation time. Mm-hmm. Not high school, elementary school. And what you have, students would uh, put on exhibits. Exhibits may be something they made. Um, it may be, and there's a picture up of some of the of some of the exhibits and a county commencement where you see this long line winding around. Oh, and by the yes. way, okay. this is in the rain. 
and you have people out uh, for these to see their kids and to find out what they're doing. Kids would give uh, would give may give short plays. They may uh, recite poetry. Uh, all sorts of things. So it's showing the academic side as well as the industrial side, what they can make with their hands. People, you could have, I have records of 1,200 people showing up to 17,000 people showing up for these things. Mm-hmm. Now, when you generate that and, and you know, parades, every, you know, all of that goes hand in hand. But when you think of that, those numbers, there's no way that a superintendent and that others don't see this. And so they recognize, okay, they are interested because, you know, the argument was blacks don't want to learn. They're not interested. So the Jeans teachers promoted that kind of, of, uh, of goodwill, shall I say, and that kind of knowledge so that the superintendent now is forced to deal with some things he may not have dealt with before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that is really <laughs> Just very. It looks like a challenge, but also a wonderful opportunity. Yes, and that's that is part of it because when you think about an opportunity, they're they're basically told to do the next needed thing. Um, but the key is, the next needed thing for one community didn't necessarily mean the next needed thing for another community. Right. And so they were able to ta- tailor what they did or what was needed to be done. Uh, Their hands, I would argue their hands were in everything. Let me just give you one other quote, and then I'm going to stop giving quotes. This is a teacher describing her role, and she said uh, she was called upon to improve my soil because a lot of times they worked with farmers, add my account at the commissary, feed my children, take me to the hospital, bury my mother, write my son, read this letter, mend my steps, find a minister or justice of the peace to get me married, and show me how to build a sanitary privy. Wow. Okay. So so she they dealt with everything. Um, you're looking at getting people access to health care. Um, a lot of them form parent-teachers associations. They were very involved in organizing parent-teachers associations, which raised funding for purchasing items needed in the school, paying for school nurses, uh, to paying for janitors, uh, setting up preschool clinics. Uh, a lot of times PTAs paid part of the uh, supervisor's salary. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at at them really creating that infrastructure that you need it. Yes. And so when a Rockefeller gives money for uh, hookworm eradication in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. then it's the jeans teachers out there showing people you really need a sanitary privy. So that's what she's talking about here. Okay. In the, and, you know, and don't walk around barefoot uh, because that's how the – the larva enters into your skin. And so, you know, put screens on your windows to keep the flies out, to, you know, these kinds of health benefits. So it's, they had to be jack of all trades, so they were connected to, you know. It sounds like you're describing a social worker, a nurse. I mean, this is a case manager. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's what they were. They were that and, and more. But but it does evolve. Like the second generation doesn't necessarily deal as much with building a schools because that first generation has helped do that. Mm-hmm. So that second generation 
can now be concerned about the curriculum and getting teachers trained. And was that first generation influenced by Booker T. Washington? They were. That first generation, it comes out of that industrial ed training, yeah. either Hampton or Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we think of that as their, as part of their focus, but I argue they use that training to turn Jim Crow on its head. Because, you know, that, that quote that I read about they're not buying stuff from me. Yes. You're making people self-sufficient. Jim Crow wants you to be dependent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's part of that struggle. Yes, but what kind of reaction did they uh, get? I mean, first of all, the kids are going to school. They're not working in the field. Right. So what kind of reaction did the community people have? Because you just said they're not buying my canned goods either. Right. That's exactly right. You know, it, part of it is you would have pockets where there's pushback. But it did not stop them from, as you can tell when you look at uh, people coming to school, they figured out ways to do it. Um, The teachers, a lot of times, you know, you still got Jim Crow. You still got people saying, I want them in my fields. So a lot of times teachers taught split uh, sessions. Okay. Or Or parents and parents were very creative as well. They would send one child to school. And that child would come back and teach teach the others, or they would send one child to school one day and another child to school the next day, and so one would be in the field and one would be in school. Mm-hmm. They just figured out ways to do it. And did the parents uh, take advantage of the educational opportunities, or was it just for the children? No. Uh, early on, you can look at, when you look at the earlier schools, um, you know, a lot of times parents, the, the evening schools, a lot of times the jeans teachers and other teachers as well, they taught more than just there was adult education. Mm-hmm. And so in the community, if they saw the parents needed to be taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, then they would have school just for the parents. Okay. So well, they, they had round-the-clock jobs. Yes, it, it sounds like they really did have a round-the-clock job. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come right back, okay? All right. and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. 
Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And you have been listening to Dr. Belinda Littlefield. Now, Dr. Littlefield has given us a brief overview of the genes teachers. And we're going to just continue this discussion right now. So, Dr. Littlefield, what were their strengths? Tell us the strengths and then some of the weaknesses of the genes teachers. You know, I would argue that they were very cre- they were extremely creative. Um, they often used the materials at hand because, again, you're working within a very oppressive system where people really don't want you to have very much. Um, I'll give you an example. One of the teachers uh, in teaching music, because they didn't have musical instruments, in order to teach her students notes, she filled Coca-Cola bottles up with water to a certain level. And she could get notes that way. So she could teach them the musical notes using water in Coca-Cola bottles. Okay? Okay. Um, They, old magazines, they would big borrow however they could get old magazines to make books out of for their students to use. Uh, one of the jeans teachers I interviewed said that uh, in order to teach her kids math, she had them build dollhouses, mm-hmm. yeah. which is a but wonderful way to resourceful. teach math. You just, you know, very resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, they were great organizers, and they did not boast it was almost almost like they were they were very quiet about what they were doing in many many ways they they often did not take credit for the things that they did and mm-hmm. and a lot of times others took credit for it uh they just wanted the work done and they didn't care who got the credit for it they just wanted to make sure that certain things got done and and they did it uh, you know a weakness certainly there were individ- they were human, so there were individuals with 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 weaknesses, but as a group, I am really hard pressed to find to come up with a weakness because they set out to do a job, and I would argue they did it extremely well mm-hmm. in in essence, they served as the unofficial county superintendents of negro schools mhm now the unofficial <laughs> mm-hmm. were, were there any official? No, there were never any official uh, during the Jim Crow period uh, Negro black uh, county superintendents. But the jeans teacher had a direct line to the superintendent and a direct line to a state agent, and it meant that they were and they were roving te- they were roving supervisors. Okay, so like the one with eighty four schools, mm-hmm. so she knows that county inside and out, whereas a principal or a teacher only knows their particular school. Yeah. All right. But she knows all 84 schools. She knows all their weaknesses. She knows their strengths. And so she is that liaison between the black and white community. She is that liaison or he. South Carolina had a few he's. Um, She is, but for the most part, 99% of them are going to be female. But she is that liaison between the state and local government agencies. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when state health departments want to have a tuberculosis um, training or when they want to test 
people to find out if they have tuberculosis, then it's the genes teacher they go to because she has access to, to bodies. Um, if you have uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, this guy who's asking her about soil and the quote that I gave you earlier, if there is information coming out about soil preservation and those kinds of things, then it's the genes teacher who gets that information and shares it with people uh, early on. Before we get farm demonstration agents, they come later, uh, but it's the genes teacher who's early on doing that. And many genes teachers became home economic uh, demonstrators once they started hiring African-American home demonstration. So they're the forerunner of, of, of doing these kinds of things. But, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking now, if the, the genes teachers have been educated at Hampton and Tuskegee. That's the first generation. That's the first generation. Yes. And so how are they recruited to go in these various rural communities? Yeah. Most of them are from these very rural communities. Most of the first generation are rural themselves. And one could argue the second generation is rural as well, but they have been uh, to other places, other schools. Uh, they're not coming strictly out of that industrial ed uh, umbrella, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of them are rural women themselves, and they've taught for, for a very long time. And what happens is a, a committee of people, uh, mainly white, will would come to the room, uh, the classroom, and they know somebody's coming to observe them. And they would observe them and then most, you know, a lot of times make them a job offer to become a genes teacher. Uh, and then they'd be interviewed by the superintendent and the state agent for Negro education. Uh, but it was a process, and they also had to be trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and the first generation didn't have cars, but the second generation does have, you know, have the requirement is that you have a car. Uh, you know, the first generation is getting around horse and buggy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or walking, you know. Yes, yes. Now, how did their professional lives impact their personal lives and vice versa? Okay. Uh, when you think about their professional lives, you know, we've just talked about all the kinds of things that they did. Uh, one of the things that the genes teachers could not do if they were working in a community, they could not date anyone in that community. Okay. So if you're in a county school system, uh, wherever you are, you can't date anybody there. Um, which is really interesting, but part of it is, you know, you don't, as, as a supervisor and as a leader, you don't want to put yourself in a position where as you're supervising a teacher and you and the teacher are going after the same man. Not a good uh-huh. situation to put yourself in, okay? So that was one of the rules that they knew. One of those rules, one yes. One of those rules, okay. One of those rules. Um, a lot of them um, had commuting marriages, and so early on, even the the, the one I'm looking at in 1913, uh, she you know she has a community a commuting marriage for the rest of of her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in Virginia, she's in uh, North Carolina. Another genes teacher I interviewed, she was in Aiken, South Carolina. He was in Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you know your personal life a lot of times gets you you're away from from your other. Uh, from, from your significant other, put it like that. So it does impact their personal uh, their personal life, but it also impacts their professional life. I think it makes them um, they're very independent mm-hmm. people. Uh, they're they're professionals, and so they do manage to most of them manage to do both. 
Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, and they tend to marry husbands who understand this is their job. Right. And how did the community uh, view them? Were they in high esteem in the community? They were in very high esteem. Uh, if you look at uh, and feared, uh, I interviewed a couple of, of, of people who talked about, who were teachers and talked about Jean's teachers. And uh, when you got, if you were a teacher, uh, you got pregnant, your marriage got pregnant, uh, the the, usually once you started showing you were you were to quit and then you could come back you know nine months after you had the baby mm-hmm. but this particular woman said that the principal had told her that she could work a little while longer because she really needed she needed the money mm-hmm. and he understood her situation the jeans teacher came in to observe her and immediately noticed that she was pregnant and she had to leave that day wow okay so they had that kind of power yeah um, so, but but when you look at uh, people talking about what jeans teachers did for them, there was a jeans teacher in South Carolina and in, in, in the Jackson Davis collection. Uh, she is standing beside a car that the community has given her to get around mm-hmm. to use this transportation. So I would say she was definitely in high cotton, and and that's that's not unusual for for communities to rally behind their jeans teachers and support them. Yes, which is just uh, outstanding. Now, when you think about the jeans teachers, now I know they were employed in the various rural schools, but how mm-hmm. long uh, were the jeans teachers employed? They were employed, you mean like uh, during the year? Yes. Okay, six to, to seven months. Okay. Um, and then after that, so let's say a jeans teacher also worked for home ec, you know, did the homemakers club. So that's summertime. So she could be employed year round, mm-hmm. depending on the kinds of of opportunities she was giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first generation of gene teachers certainly uh, could be employed year round if they were interested in homemakers clubs. Mm-hmm. The second generation of gene teachers, once you start increasing the number of months that students, black students, have access to school, because remember, you're talking about Jim Crow. Average, when you're looking at 1,900, average number of months for a child to go to school is like three for a black child. Three months. Three months. My next question, you answered it. (laughs) But, you know, by the the time they finish, many of those have been, you know, extended. That was part of their job. They saw as part of their job was to extend the number of months that black kids had access to school. Mm -hmm. over and over again. Now, you mentioned earlier that there were men. There were who men. were jeans teachers, but when you look at the percentage, what was the overall percentage? Overall percentage, you're talking 98% all women. Mhm. It's almost 99, very close to 99. Uh I think, you know, at one figure I'm looking at one year and I want to say it's like 19 31 you've got 327 jeans teachers in the south and 17 of them are men mm-hmm. and okay. then what percentage of that would be uh did, did you have white teachers who were jeans teachers or were no they well African? you know what that's interesting because normally not south carolina however had a white jeans teacher that they paid for um because they they were um, impressed with what the black jeans teacher was doing with the rural schools, they opted to hire uh, to 
to pay for a white jeans teacher. That's the only state I know of who hired a white jeans teacher. Mm-hmm. Now, when you got to 1968, because jeans teachers were black teachers, uh, once you get integration start or desegregation starting to happen, uh, most whites were not interested in being called jeans teachers because that was a tag attached to, to black women. And so what happens is, Jeans teachers become curriculum instructors, and so do white women mm. who are doing the same thing. Because by then they had evolved into dealing mainly with the curriculum. Okay. Now there's a question coming out of the chat, and that question is, is there a database of where the jeans teachers served? You know, there is. Georgia um, did a very good uh, – there's a book – uh, with them looking at each state, um, more work needs to be done, but looking at each state, and they give you a pretty good understanding of, of the states that had genes teachers and, and the numbers. Virginia had the highest number of genes teachers. That, that's where your first genes teacher came out of. Mm-hmm. The state agent for Negro education there was very connected to Rockefeller. North Carolina had a very high number of, consistently a high number of genes teachers. That's because the state agent for Negro education was N.C. Newbold, and he was in North Carolina for 50 years. So those kinds of connections allowed them to to build up uh, their arsenal of genes teachers, and and the genes teachers did a very good job. Uh, but for the most part, you're you're looking. All the southern states had had genes teachers, mm-hmm. but many of them had you know their more than their fair share, so, shall we say? And and certainly Virginia and North Carolina had a higher number. So this uh, database that you just mentioned in Georgia, how can we find it? Uh, if you go online and look for just just look for Georgia Jeans Teachers, mm-hmm. you'll find the name of the book. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book. It's been out for quite some time, but it's a very very useful book. There's there's not a database that you can tap into, and that that's not there yet. It needs to be there, but there's not an online database that you can tap into. You literally have to look at the book, and the book would tell you, you know. How many were in North Carolina? They'll give you some names of people who were in North Carolina, uh, Georgia, how many jeans teachers, who were some of the most famous, and they give you – they even have photographs Oh, okay. in the book. Wow. Uh, but so, you know, so so part of it is, you know, pulling this, hitch, this, this history um, – a database is needed, but mm-hmm. there's not a database out there. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you have uh, alluded to the fact that you've interviewed – Genes teachers. So yes. just describe to us your, your research methods, finding these teachers, and then what, what did you ask them? Yeah. Um, I tend to interview people uh, more than once. I think you have to get uh, comfortable with them, and they have to get comfortable with you. I also tend to go to functions that they're involved in. Let's say they're getting an award at church or there's a family reunion or there's an event they're involved in, then I tend to figure out a way to go to these things because I'm seeing them, uh, you know, in in different walks of their lives, and and that helps me understand them. And it also helps me meet other people who knew them um, or who know them at the time. But, But I tend to interview them more than once. I get wonderful stories that way. People, once people become comfortable with you, they, they will share different things with you. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I, I do interview people more than once. I like to interview if there's a family member, like a husband or a sister, I like to interview them as well because a lot of times they will remember things that the other one didn't remember, you know, or or they will, let's say they will spark those brain cells. And, and so I like to do that. Um, then, you know, there's the hard research, there's the other hard part of research is looking at, you know, that's time consuming and it's something I enjoy doing, but it's very time consuming. But the other thing is, you know, going to the churches, looking at the records at the churches. Um, did they teach Sunday school? Because a lot of them did. Uh, how active were they in the church? So you look for those kinds of records to see what they're doing. Because I'm interested in both their personal and professional lives yeah. to see how the two dovetail. Um, or if not, and you know, the, the, then there are the state archives. You you look for records there. The Rockefeller Foundation has wonderful records on 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 uh, black education. Mm-hmm. Um, state archives, you'd be surprised at the kinds of materials you will find in state archives. So even your your county school, uh, you know, the administrative office, you know, they had minute books. They they I went through minute books and. In, in, Several well, you know, that's offices. one of the things I wanted to know because you have these kids. Would some of those minute books actually have the names of the students? Some of them, some of them will. Um, only if only for for the county school records, they the minute books. If you're talking about the county administrators, mm-hmm. they will only name the students if there was a a, a problem. Oh. And I'll give you an example. Um, when you think about this was in a Virginia, I was looking at uh, a Virginia county, Henri County, where one of my teachers started out. One of the jeans teachers started out, and she ends up as a jeans teacher in North Carolina. But she taught in in Enrico County for about 17 years, and so I was tracking her back to her earlier teaching days. Mm-hmm. And in the minute books, there was a case where a student, um, the mother, the mother-in-law was saying that the daughter-in-law's child was part black and therefore should not be allowed to attend a white school because mm-hmm. her son the son had her son had died and she didn't want this child attending although the rest of the siblings were attending the white school and the child looked white mm-hmm. but she was testifying that the child was not all white And so, in the minute books, it you know it tells me you know who the name the name of the mother-in-law, the name of the mother, uh, the child's name is there, and the fact that this child does not get to go Mm -hmm. to the white school. Okay. Okay. So you get those kind you you can get names there. Where you mainly get names of students is by interviewing the teachers, and many of them kept still have their record books. Yes. Now and you, so you can yeah. get names that way. Right. Now we have two questions out of the chat, and we have someone on the line. So I'll let okay. the person on the line. Uh, this is Blog Talk Radio. You have a question or a comment? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. Good evening. Uh, great show. I love the history of the Jeans teachers. Thank and you. And have a question uh, for your guest. Um are you familiar with the works of Emma Aiken? She was a uh, teacher out of Oklahoma. She herself was not a jeans teacher. However, she wrote a series of textbooks for black children out of Drumlight, Oklahoma in 1938. Mm-hmm. And they were, instead of Dick and Jane, you mm-hmm. had Johnny Lee Clara 
and Jimmy, you had three little black children, and instead of drawings, the pictures were real photographs. And in the series of books, one of the books was called Gifts, Negro Boys and Girls. And it focused, an entire portion of the book was on Miss Williams, a jeans teacher. You see the jeans teacher coming to the school. You see her visiting the homes. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely stunning. And that was, oh, gosh, 20-something years ago when my mom had just found, my mom worked in an elementary school, and they were talking out over and she grabbed them, and she knew I would want it. That you would want it. I have not heard of her, and this is wonderful. Now, I have heard of, I I don't know if you've heard of Helena Dale Whiting. Have you heard of her? No, I'm not. Uh, Who is she? She was a teacher in uh, in Georgia, uh, Atlanta, and she wrote uh, textbooks as well. And one of her books has a a story on the jeans teacher. And and, and she is writing around the very same time that Mrs. Aiken is writing, uh, late 1920s. All through the 30s and 40s, and I'm going to find Miss. I'm going to find Miss Emma Aiken. Thank you so very much. This is wonderful. I'm excited. I might be able to help with that because I wrote a blog piece. Okay. I even have pictures of the children and talking about the book. A lady who runs the the museum in this town of Okay. Oklahoma has the personal papers of the lady who was the author. Now, the author of these books for Negro children was a white author, but she has her personal papers. Okay. And of course, how she came to write the story of, of these schools. And the book was really, the series was developed for the enrichment of the children in this segregated mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. in rural Oklahoma. Palma. And as I said, and it went through the history of the jeans teachers from Anna T. Jeans to Virginia oh. Rand to the oh, I love it. jeans teacher in Oklahoma teaching her school. Wow. Oh, well, I can't wait. With you. And, okay. Um, it's exciting. And it is exciting. <laughs> Thank you. And I can't wait for us so to talk. We'll talk. Right. All right. Okay. Wow. Well, wow. actually, there are two other questions coming out of the chat, and okay. it's, it's by the same person who just called us. Okay. <laughs> she wanted to know, were you familiar with the work of Dr. Donna Tyler Holly, who wrote her uh, doctoral dissertation on the genes teachers? Donna Tyler Holly. She's not ringing a bell to me at all. Okay. Donna okay. She knows all these wonderful people hiding back there, right? Oh, plain sight. A relative contacted her and said, "You know, cousin whomever, Agnes whomever, cousin Marion whomever passed away. She left a trunk full of stuff. Would you like it?" And she said, "Okay, I'll come and look through the trunk full of stuff." It was a trunk full of memorabilia of her forty years, maybe a little bit less, as a jeans teacher. Ah. It was enough material for her to to write her entire doctoral dissertation on. Oh, my. And it's Holly, H-O-L-L-Y? H-O-L-L-I-E. Okay. And I will also share that information with you. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just something, you know, I I know when I mentioned to people that you would be talking about genes teachers, the one thing everybody wants to know, oh, it's a genes teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we we just need to talk more about. We need to, because, we do. You know, the kids were educated by someone. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt, but 
we need to determine, well, how can a genealogist use the information, you know, you've shared with us about genes teachers and their mm-hmm. own research. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you help us understand how we can use that information? Well, you know, part of it is look in places that you really would not think to look. Um, we often do not think of going to a church and saying, let me see your Sunday school minute books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, because a lot of times names are in there, dates are in there, people taking over Sunday school. It just gives you a better glimpse of that person's life. Mm-hmm. It, it just rounds it out. It, it makes it, I, I often argue that it adds flesh to the bone. Yeah, you you can have the bare bones, but when you start adding the flesh to it, and and it really is looking in places that you often don't think about looking. Uh, county school records, a lot of times they're in the the county administrator's office mm-hmm. or the city school's administrative office. Mm-hmm. They have vaults of stuff that they have not yet given to state archives. And you need to ask them, what's in your vault? You know, what's what's in the basement? What's stored in the basement? Mm-hmm. Uh, newspapers are stored in the basement. Uh, photographs are stored in the basement. And a lot of times you need to convince them to give them to the archives so they're preserved. Yes, definitely. So somebody else will come along and say, this is junk, I'm throwing it out. And that's something we don't need to happen. We don't need that to happen. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is to look and see what your aunts, your grandmas, your great-grandmas and your uncles have. Because a lot of times they have stored everybody and their brother's obituary. Mm-hmm. And we often don't think about how how much information you can get out of a, an obituary. Yes. And the old people kept obituaries. They, they did. did not throw <laughs> them away. We throw them away. They did not throw them away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They tucked them back in a trunk or something somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and And those are just things that are just, they're there. We just haven't asked for them. Right. But also just interviewing people in your family. We find out things, you know, I found out things just by interviewing my mom that I had no clue, and my mom will be 80 in December. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't have a clue. And it was just me with a tape recorder sitting down, chatting with my mom and my and, and my aunt, her sister. Now, to your knowledge, how many genes teachers may still be around today? You know what? That's not a lot um, because it ended in 1968. Mm-hmm. These are seasoned teachers. Um, you know, they've been teaching 10, 15, 20 years before they become genes teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The last one I interviewed um, died in 2005. She was 96. Mm-hmm. Now, there, I'm sure there's probably one or two out there, or, or a few out there, but I would argue very few genes teachers are left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the good thing is that people have done some oral interviews with, with genes teachers. Um, you know, I'm only one of, of, of one person, but but certainly other people have done oral interviews as well. Yes. So the records are out there, and, and many of them have written their own stories. It's just a matter of finding those stories. It's a matter of finding them, just like the the caller who just told me about, you know, these, Donna Tyler who finds out that, you know, there's someone in her family who was a genes teacher. Um, 
you know, people just often, you know, genes teachers, is it's not in our vocabulary. It's gone out. And so, you know, we just don't know who those people are. Yeah. But where can we find your research? Um, if you Google me, it'll pop up. Um, I'm working on a manuscript now on black women school teachers doing the Jim Crow era from uh, 1884 to 19. 19- 84. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got about two more chapters to finish, and so hopefully within the next couple of years it'll be out. And in that book are two chapters on genes te- on two gene on the two genes teachers uh, that I interviewed, that one that I interviewed and one that I did lots and lots of research on as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she had died she died in 1934, so I didn't get a chance to interview her. But there was tons of materials out there on her. Um, and then, you know, other people had done some oral interviews on genes teachers in South Carolina, so I used those uh, interviews that they did. Uh, I went to the Rockefeller Foundation and, and got materials on genes teachers as well. And this is a group who also was an international group. Mm-hmm. They're a group that started a foundation to raise funding uh, to send genes teachers to Liberia, uh, Kenya, uh South Africa, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a story we often don't talk about as, as these women as international uh, educators. Yes, that's you're exactly right. what they were. You're right. You're right. Well, we are getting close to closing out the show, and do you have any, any parting comments or recommendations to the listeners uh, concerning researching the genes, teachers, gathering as much information as they can about where and how they're uh, ancestors were educated. Yeah, you know the first place to start is just ta- is by talking to family members, especially the older family members, and then take that thread and just continue to pull it. Uh, that's the best advice I can I can give someone uh, to find out where those school records, especially for black schools. A lot of times when the schools integrated, a lot of our records were just tossed, and so. What you need to find out is where are some of those records? Are they in a state archives? Are they in a you know in that school system, that school that's still there? Does somebody in the community have those records? Mm-hmm. You know, some old person in that community, like this woman who gave a trunk. A trunk is it their trunk somewhere with photographs, all sorts of materials, and we just need to start digging and asking. And I think often we don't ask those right questions. We don't go searching. And once we find the materials, we need to put them in a place where they're preserved. Yes. Yes. And and also share. And <laughs> share. share. That's, yes. And then that's what I mean when I say... Share those Yes. When I say put them in a place where they can be preserved, that also means where everybody, where the public has access to them. Yes. Yes. You don't lock them up in a storage room. You actually put them in a place where they're preserved and the public has access. Right. Well, this has been just a great overview of the genes teachers. And let me just tell everyone, this is not going to be our only discussion of genes teachers because next week, uh, March 28th, we will have Joanne Abels. 
and she is an adult programming and humanities librarian at the Durham County Library, and her discussion will focus on Jean's teachers and their community organizing work to build the Rosenwald School. Yes, that'll be and a great one. And so, yes, and, and Joanne's master's thesis was Persistence and Sacrifice, Durham County's African-American community and Durham's genes teachers build community schools between 1900 and 1930. So this is just a wonderful way of us celebrating Women's History Month by talking about these fantastic teachers. So I just would want to say to you, Dr. Littlefield, thank you so very much for joining me tonight and I thank want you for everyone, thank you so much. And I want everyone to remember your ancestors left footprints. Think yes. about those footprints at the churches, in the communities, in the schools. Just think about that. You know, therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National archives, and beyond. So let's keep this conversation going on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, everyone, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on tomorrow and also to listen to Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So thank you so much for joining me at Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast. So good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, good night. Dr. Littlefield. Good night. Thank you so very much. We'll Thank talk soon. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.